0: In our study of the book of Ephesians this morning, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Anybody got a page number for me? Oh, 976, I heard. So you could turn there, and as you're turning there, and as I'm turning there, um, and by way of introduction, in 2004, which is crazy how long ago that was, um, In 2004, the popular cable television preacher, Joel Osteen, published his New York Times bestselling book, Your Best Life Now. The title alone of that book raises red flags for thoughtful biblical Christians. They ask very reasonably, if our best life is now, then what does that mean for our life in the future? Now, one review of this book was really helpful to me. It offered a helpful evaluation. It says that Osteen's book advocates for the same strategy as popular psychology often advocates for. And that's basically think highly of yourself, envision yourself as successful, and even demand that from God and demand that from others, and it will work. You will become successful. Joel Osteen in that book, Your Best Life Now, kind of takes the power of positive thinking and sprinkles in the word God and sprinkles in Bible verses every now and then. But thoughtful biblical Christians understand that your best life now is not Christianity, that the gospel is not us collaborating with God in order to make us more successful. The gospel's about redemption, salvation eternity. Osteen's gospel makes no mention of sin, how we are under God's judgment and separated from him. Neither does it mention Jesus's work on the cross to save us from sin. Instead, Osteen and others like him want to use God to serve themselves. You see, the message ultimately is that everything is about me. It's about me my desires, my success, my promotion, my car, my self-esteem. But then we come to the word, a place like Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. And we see a beautiful and deep prayer. And here in this prayer, the Apostle Paul's desire is not to pursue and know himself, His desire and pursuit is to know God. He is God-centered, not me-centered. Paul knew God's word through Jeremiah that we read earlier. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows friends is knowing God your deepest thrill your deepest pursuit and your deepest wonder maybe sometimes but I would guess a lot of the times the answer is no so we need this prayer from the apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 because as much as we criticize a book like Your Best Life Now, each one of us find a way to preoccupy ourselves with, well, ourselves. <laughs> to preoccupy ourselves with ourselves. Now the Apostle Paul has just finished unfolding how God has lavished his grace on us to give us every spiritual blessing through Christ. Now his prayer is that we wouldn't treat those blessings and the God who gives them as a dry and bland substance, but as living, ultimate reality. The understanding that underlies uh, this prayer and the main idea behind it is that those who have received God's glorious grace want to know the God of glorious grace. Those who have received God's glorious grace want to know the God of glorious grace. So with that, you can follow along as I read Ephesians chapter one, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. This is the word of the Lord. From this passage, we'll see the reasons for for prayer. That's gonna be a short, quick point. It's just verses 15 to 16. And we'll see the content of prayer. It'll be a longer point. The main content or outcome of that prayer is to know God better. So first, the reasons for prayer in verses 15 to 16. Take another look at verse 15. And do you see how it points backward and forward it says for this reason because he seems redundant here for this reason though points backward to all the verses 3 to 14 remember those verses are how God out of his glorious grace has given us every spiritual blessing to those who deserve really every curse Verses 3 to 14 are one long sentence to describe how each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, planned, accomplished, and applied our salvation from beginning to end. And we see this pointing backwards. How is this a reason to pray that God has done this? Well, I think we could take it as a statement of confidence. Paul prays because of who God is. God is sovereign over all lives and events. From verses 3 to 14, we see that he is purposeful. He's loving. He's gracious. He's glorious. He's generous. And I'm sure we can make more observations than just that. So if we think about it, if that is who God is, then why wouldn't we want to press in to know him? You see verse 15. Look there. It also points forward for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers here as Paul points forward. He prays because of what God has done, specifically because of what God has done for the Ephesian Christians. Now, how do we know that God is the one who has given them faith and love? Well, who else would have Paul thanked for these gifts? Paul thanked God for the the Ephesians' faith and love. And as the Bible repeats, these things go together. Love is the first fruit of faith. It is a sign that faith is real and genuine. 1 John 4 verse uh, 21 says, And this is the commandment we have from him, that whoever loves God must also love his brother. That these are gifts from God, that Paul thanks God for the Ephesians' faith and love. It means that the Ephesians never would have had faith and love if God didn't intervene in their lives. They never would have had it. It's the same true for you and me, friends. Those who trust in Jesus today, you would never have trusted in Jesus if God did not intervene in your life. While, yes, we genuinely exercise these things, faith and love, they are not the result of us working our way up to God. They are the result of God coming down to us. And so when we dwell on that truth, it should make us humble, shouldn't it? It should remind us that this faith in any good fruit, any good in me, is not from me. It should keep us humble. Dwelling on this truth also should keep us thankful. We should thank God, God, you alone have given this to me, and you didn't have to. Dwelling on this truth that faith and love are gifts from God, it should also make us prayerful. We should pray, God, continue to work in me and do what I can't. So Paul thanked for what God had done for the Ephesians up to this point, how he had given them faith and love, but Paul wasn't satisfied. You notice the title to the sermon, it's the prayer of holy discontent. Paul prayed because he knew that the God who intervened in their lives to give them faith is the same one who could intervene in their lives to give them growth. So even though the Ephesian Uh, christians already believed and they already demonstrated that belief was genuine by their love for one another not to pray for them would be as foolish as not to feed and care for a baby think about that i mean a a baby a, a birth is a cause for celebration It's a turning point. It's a gift. And we might think of it even as a culmination of sorts because there's a lot that's happened up to this point. Talk about trimesters, Lamaze class, and for my poor mother, 17 hours of labor. (laughs) But birth does not represent an end. It represents a new beginning. So here for the Ephesians, the gift of faith and love is not the end of the road. It is the beginning of a new one that they need to continue to travel on. this, This is the road of continual transformation into the likeness of Christ as we know him more deeply. Now before we move on to the content of Paul's prayers, let the reasons that Paul prays challenge us and captivate us i wonder friends what moves you to pray when do you feel most moved to pray now i don't know about you but for me it's often negative reasons you know i pray because i feel guilty or obligated I've used this example before, uh, but I'm going to share it again because it happened just last night again. Um, When I eat with my family, when I eat dinner with my family, you know, the call is made, dinner's ready. We gather kind of to the island counter, and we're encircled, and there's a little pause, and everybody turns to look at me. (laughs) I guess I'm the pastor, so I am obligated to pray that's um, all so I do it's fine um, and then you know guilt can make me can drive me to prayer there are days like yesterday was a busy day for me too um, when just actions seem to get started right from the beginning and then I realize somewhere in the day like oh I haven't prayed today I guess I better say something to God Well, besides guilt or obligation, it's other negative reasons like crises or prayer requests drive me to pray. When I find something's wrong, I just go to God and ask him, well, Lord, can you fix it? And none of this is necessarily bad on its own. Don't hear me saying that. We should feel obligated to pray at times. We should feel guilty for not praying at times. It's good to feel that conviction of sin. And prayer requests and crises should drive us to prayer. They should drive us to lean on God. But I want us to notice here the reasons that Paul prays. This vibrant prayer that pours out of Paul, it flows from a deep meditation on God's character and actions. In other words, it flows not from guilt or obligation or prayer requests. It flows from good reasons. Paul prayed not because he would feel bad if he didn't, but because he wanted to pursue and know the God who lavishes grace. He prayed for other people, not just because their third cousin has asthma and it's acting up, no, though he does pray for the sick. <laughs> Paul prayed for other people because he saw all the good that God had worked in their lives, and he thanked God for it, and he asked God, would you do now let's look at the content of paul's prayer what did paul actually pray this is going to be a longer point since it spans from verses 17 to 23 now with all the parts of this prayer a lot of moving parts here let's get clear on the actual outcome paul desires and prays for and that is knowledge of god to know god to know him better This is the headline, the banner that hangs over this prayer from verses 17 to 23. To know God, or in the knowledge of Him. Now with that heading in place, we can tackle the parts of this prayer a little more effectively. Examine it like this. How knowledge of God and deeper knowledge of God is possible. what What it means to know God. Why it's important to know God. And what knowledge of God includes. If you missed that, it'll be on the screen and I'll say it again. (laughs) First, how how knowledge of God is possible, how it's possible to know God. I think we take this for granted. We just assume, of course, it's possible to know God. But we need to get specific on this. Take a look at verses 17 to 18. Notice we can see how it's possible to know God and how Paul addressed God and how he prefaced his request to God. Notice that just as Paul praised the Lord in verses 3 to 14, how that praise was Trinitarian, how he praised Father, Son, and Spirit, so also here his prayer is Trinitarian. He prayed to the Father on the basis of the Son and through the Holy Spirit. So look at how Paul addressed God. He called him God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, verse 17. Theologian D.A. Carson points out that Paul's request to God often informed how he would address God. What he was asking for shaped how, what he would call God in prayer. So an example, another example, Romans chapter 15 Romans 15 verse 4 says that Paul's telling the Romans, hey, immerse yourself in scripture and it will yield the result of encouragement and hope. Very next verse, Romans 15 verse 5, the outcome is encouragement and hope. And Paul says, may the God of encouragement and hope do this for you, essentially. So here in Ephesians 1, remember, The outcome Paul is praying for, the request is to know God better. So if that request will shape how Paul addresses God, then this title is significant. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That title must mean something about how God makes himself known. How we know him. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us, this title, that the way the Father has supremely made himself known is through the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Son. Colossians 1.12 calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. It's pos- so friends, get down to the brass tacks. How is it possible to know God? It's possible to know God because of Jesus because he took on flesh and dwelt among us and reconciled us to the Father through his death and resurrection in our place. Francis tells us that the God is not a God of your own understanding. The only way it is possible to know God is not through your own understanding, but through Jesus Christ, the one who existed eternally alongside the Father and has now made him known. But still, we can say more about how it's possible to know God and know him deeply. Notice that Paul addressed God also as the father of glory. Another way you could translate this is the glorious father. So remember what we've been saying. Paul's requests shaped how he addressed God. So he wants to know God better so the way he addressed God will reflect the truth that God makes himself known. So here, the God of glory, the Father of glory, it reminds us not just that God is beautiful and majestic, it also reminds us, Father of glory, this title, that God graciously discloses himself to us. You might remember how this worked for Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses asked a similar request as Paul does here. He asked God, God, show me your glory. God, graciously enough, passed by Moses, and Moses saw at least the edge of God's glory. God's glory reminds us that God makes himself known. God is infinitely high above us, and the only way we'll know him is not if we climb up to him, but if he bends down to us. Common analogy you may have heard before, The only way you would ever get the jar of cookies as a kid that your parents put on top of the cabinet is not if you climbed up there. At least I couldn't as a pudgy kid. But if your parents brought them down and left them on the counter, God puts the cookies on a shelf where we can reach them. And he does this despite the fact we have turned our backs against him. Now I know this, we're belaboring this just a little bit, but it's important to know how it's possible we know God in the first place because we just shouldn't take it for granted. We need to highlight one more factor and that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 17, we said the outcome, the request Paul has is to know God, knowledge of God. But the way he asks God to achieve that outcome is to give us the spirit of wisdom revelation later on in verse 18 he says that the spirit enlightens the eyes of our heart now this implies something about us doesn't it little sneak preview for wednesday night and how to answer this question this implies something about us you see paul didn't ask god that the ephesian christians would find it in themselves to know god better no, Paul asked God for the Holy Spirit to press them into a deeper knowledge of God. This is how it worked when when we first believed, isn't it? The Holy Spirit had to make it make us known, open our eyes. Remember what Paul told the Corinthian Christians? He asked them, "Hey guys, do you know all the hot shots and wise guys who are around you? All of those eloquent speakers, all of those credentialed scholars?" Do you know why most of them see the gospel as a waste of time? Do you know why most of them see the gospel of a crucified Messiah as foolish? Well, it's because they're stuck on a high view of their own wisdom, and they won't take hold of God's wisdom until the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. It's what he tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we don't like admitting this about ourselves, do we? That we are unable to know and understand and grasp God on our own. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. We don't like being poor in spirit. As Tim Keller often says, we are middle class in spirit. We'll do it ourselves. We don't take handouts. We don't take charity. But you see friends, the only way we'll ever be saved is if we throw ourselves entirely on God's mercy and And when we begin to realize that, that's the spirit working. Because we don't realize that on our own. We need the spirit not just to start knowing God, but to continue to know God. It says he is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is what the spirit gives so that we can know God better. Wisdom and revelation. But there's a question, though, that pops up with this. If God has already revealed himself through Christ and that revelation is encapsulated and written down in the scriptures, then what does Paul mean here that the Spirit gives revelation? I think a parallel verse might help us. In Philippians 3, verse 15, Paul wrote, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. There, the Philippian Christians needed the Spirit to reveal more of himself and more of his ways to them. The Spirit brings us the truths, the ways, and the character of God so that we can receive them, understand them, and cherish them. That's what the Spirit does. Common analogies are that the spirit turns the recipe into taste. Or like we talked about Wednesday night or in kids' time, let's say you sat at the upper deck of a baseball game. The players seem tiny. They look like ants. But that's not their actual size, is it? But if you look through binoculars, you get to see the players closer to their actual size, even though they're far away. The spirit is our spiritual binoculars. Maybe one more analogy. If you notice the fireplace in the lobby here, anybody? It was very pers- purposeful. Do you f- I think it adds a sense of ambiance to the lobby. It's Very nice. But if you have noticed, if you paid attention carefully, if you stand next to that fireplace, you'll find out that it doesn't emit very much heat next to no heat maybe a little bit but not a lot the Holy Spirit not only gives us light to see he also gives us heat warmth so that we don't just understand Christ in our heads but that we embrace him as sweet and cherish him in our hearts that is what the Holy Spirit does this is how it's possible to know God and know him better so I'll ask you a simple question. Do you want to know God better? I assume that your presence here puts you somewhere on the spectrum of yes. <laughs> the only way that's possible is if God reveals himself, which he has done through the scripture, and scripture centers on the Lord Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. The spirit opens our eyes to take hold of Christ and makes us able to receive God's revelation of himself and his ways in the word. This is how it's possible. Now, friends, do you take advantage of that possibility? Let's just take a quick moment to play out what this might look like practically. One example. Now, I know each one of us has various distractions along the way, but think about your drive here and from this place on Sunday mornings. Think about that. Each Sunday you come here, you will hear the word of God, God's revelation of himself, centered on Christ, exposed, expounded. You will get to see how God has made himself known to us. Now think about those drives for a second. What if you made each one of those drives thoughtful? Not just went through it, but made it thoughtful and prayed that God by his spirit would show you more of himself through the word the word that centered on christ well if you did that i think then we would come and listen expectantly to hear more of god and to know him better and we would walk away reflecting and praying. it's possible to know god now the content of this prayer is to know god better we saw how this is possible next Consider what it means. What does it mean to know God? My goodness, we can write a whole book on that. In fact, I would commend to you the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Fantastic. But to know God, I think we're all on the same page, but we may need a reminder. To know God is not less than knowing facts about him, but it is so much more. Remember Jesus' earthly ministry. When he cast demons out of people we often hear demons speaking back to Jesus and they tell him accurate things they tell him pretty sound doctrine they're like nobody else is getting it but apparently the Jesus the, the demons know Jesus is the son of God the Messiah who Israel has waited for but accurate facts do not amount to truly knowing God what does it mean to know God Compare knowing God with knowing another person. I know that comparison is going to fall short eventually if we press it. But you can spend years with another person and still not know them. You can ask good questions. You can laugh together. You can work together. But knowledge of another person depends on that person revealing himself or herself to you. It depends on that person kind of letting you in because people keep secrets. Now think, God has done that for us. He's let us in. He's let us know who he is. He opens his heart and brings us into himself. To know God is to wake up to the weight of that truth. That we get to know him, the maker of everything. J.I. Packer writes, You come to realize that you listen when you listen to the scriptures, you listen that God is actually opening up his heart to you, making friends with you, and enlisting you as a colleague. So friends, let's just for a moment cut through the niceties and polite happy faces we put on here for a moment that are hidden behind our masks. Is God real to you? Is God real to you? Do you actually know Jesus? Do you speak to him like you know him? Do you sense the privilege and wonder of knowing him and being known by him? Do you care to know his heart and to know him accurately? And friends, the beautiful news, as we've been saying, is that you can. Him Now, this is what it means. please scratching the surface. Why is it important to know God? Why is it important? Well, it's our main business here, isn't it? <laughs> Westminster Catechism of Faith, you may know it. what is the chief end of man? to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? what is greater than this? What is a more worthy pursuit? Jesus himself said in John 17 that eternal life is to know God and to know the one he sent, Jesus Christ. But friends, it's true. We treat the main business as our side business. Or another analogy, we fill up on appetizers, leave no room for the main meal. To know God is important because it keeps us from the path of death and slavery. Proverbs 14, 12 famously says, there's a way that seems right to a man and its end is death. Now I want you to think back to the Garden of Eden. When the serpent approached Eve, what was his method? It was an attack on God's character. In essence, the serpent told Eve, no, if God really loved you, he would place no restrictions on you. Why would God give you desires and then keep you from satisfying them? Freedom from these oppressive restraints will give you true life. Friends, if we do not know God deeply and accurately, then we will project our misguided thoughts, our misplaced expectations, and Satan's lies onto God. We will forget the God of the cross who loved us while we were enemies. Knowing God is important because it keeps us on the path of life. To know God is important because it gives us an anchor in suffering. When we go through any kind of suffering, what does it make us think? It makes us ask, does God really love me? Does God really see? Does God really control? So pray to know him better. To know the truth about him. Think about how this worked for the Apostle Paul. It gives him a, a knowledge of God gave Paul an anchor in suffering. The Apostle Paul was rejected by people he loved. He had a chronic health, health problems. He was whipped. He was imprisoned. But he knew God because he had Jesus. Therefore, his troubles, as extreme as they were, felt temporary and less burdensome. So now... We've seen how it's possible to know God, what it means, why it's important, and now lastly, what it includes. What knowledge of God includes. It includes knowledge of hope, riches, and power. Hope, riches, and power. That's how Paul rounds out this prayer in the second half of verse 18 through verse 23. We'll go through these pretty quickly. So Paul desires a spirit-given knowledge of God that includes a knowledge of the hope to which God has called us. Now, just to be clear, the Bible treats this topic as hope, not as something that's left to chance, something that we're just optimistic about. The Bible treats the topic of hope as an expected and anticipated reality. You see, the certainty of this hope is bolstered by the one who offers it. It is a hope that comes from God's calling. This appointment here, God's calling, is from God himself. As we read earlier, Peter assures us in 1 Peter 1 that this hope is living. It's living because it hinges on the resurrection of Christ who died and rose again. But what is this hope exactly that God has called us to? What Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians helps us with this. Remember chapter 1, verse 4, you can look there. Paul wrote that God chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. What is this hope exactly? The final end, to be holy and blameless. Or later in chapter 5, verse 27, Paul wrote that Jesus gave up his life for the church so that he may present her in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blameless. This is the hope to which God has called us. Christians, let's just make this real for a second. You think about this, brother and sister. One day, you will be good. Not just sometimes. Not just part of you. Think about it. One day, you will have no ulterior motive. None. You will be pure. One day, not expecting that it's going to go away, but truly, deeply, fully, one day you will be whole and healed. This is the hope to which God has called us in Christ. Here Paul's praying, God, I want them to know this. I want them to dwell on this, to talk about it, Friends, let's talk about heaven. If you ask your friend here, what's heaven going to be like? What do you think? What's it going to be like to be without sin? It's it going to be like to see Jesus? Now, this hope does not cause us to escape our present reality. This hope shapes how we view our present reality. Since God has made us his own through Christ and has sealed us with his spirits, our lives now have direction We are headed to the city that has foundations, as Hebrews puts it, where we will dwell with God and seeing him, we will be made like him, as 1 John says. The more we center ourselves on this, the more we know this, the more we will live now like we will live then. In fact, I'll just toss this back to those who make the claim that focusing on heaven removes us from this present reality. Those who don't have hope are the ones who have to escape. Those who don't have hope are the ones who have to escape this present reality. Why do you think we love distractions so much? Why do you think that? It's more than just that we're addicted to entertainment and that everything has to be entertaining. It's that people want an escape from problems and questions they don't have answers to. This is how it's worked before 2021. The philosopher, uh, David Hume, for example, had to do this. He was the skeptic philosopher who said we can't be sure of anything. He said this because he thought our only, uh, the only way we can interpret our surroundings is through our own questionable and inaccurate perceptions and feelings. That means we can't be sure about anything. When he got depressed about this, his solution was to distract himself. He'd go out to dinner. He'd play a game of backgammon. He said he would be merry with friends. Without hope, life is a series of distractions. We continue in verse 18. A growing knowledge of God includes a knowledge of riches, specifically the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We look at this closely, and does anything surprise you here? You know, Paul talked about the inheritance we receive back in verse eleven. Here, though, he talks about the inheritance God receives. He says that we are that inheritance. He says this inheritance is rich and glorious. Now, hold on a second. Us, this room, rich, glorious? The people who are ordinary, the people who have been angry at God, the people who have had seasons and lived entirely in rebellion against God, who have treated him indifferently, who have contributed to the brokenness brokenness of this world in one way or another. Us, we are God's glorious and rich inheritance. Yeah. Yeah. But remember, though, the God that God chose us in Christ, that means he delights in us the same way he delights in his son. The father delights in us the same way he delights in his son. That's because we are united to Jesus by faith. That's because we stand in robes of Jesus's righteousness, that by his blood we are cleansed and forgiven. So Paul prays, that the Ephesians would know just how precious they are to God. Along the lines of Psalm 149, verse 4, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Finally, wrapping up here, a growing knowledge of God includes a knowledge of power. It includes a knowledge of power. This is not the power that Disney offers, the power that's deep down in you all along. This is God's power. Therefore, Paul says, this is immeasurable. This immeasurable power of God is directed toward and at work in those who trust in Christ. It is the same power as God's greatest display of power when he rose Jesus from the dead, seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Paul dispels any doubts that this power has any rival. No social movement, no force of history, no evil, No death is greater than this power. And now the one who has conquered all is our champion, our representative, our Lord. And he says in verse 23, the fullness of Christ, that is that as Jesus is fully God, fully enthroned, that is what fills and supplies his body, the church. Jesus's life is our life. Now, make this real for a second. What would happen if we truly knew and lived like this same immeasurable power of God that rose Christ from the dead? What if we truly lived like that power is in us? What if we truly lived like that? Well, could we then leap buildings in a single bound? That's not the point. If we truly knew that this power is directed toward us who believe, then, you know, I think we wouldn't be satisfied with a mediocre and dry brand of Christianity. If we truly knew that the immeasurable power of God that rose Christ from the dead is in us, gosh, then we would be so much sturdier than we are, wouldn't we? Usually about once a week, I realize how fragile... By calmness, joy, and trust is the smallest interruptions, the most minor inconveniences bother me and panic me. Paul does not want a dull and flimsy Christianity for the Ephesians. He wants one of resurrection power, one that is sturdily joyful, confident, and faithful in the face of any weakness, and any temptation, and any trial one that rests on and knows God's power, not their own. Friends, just looking back at this entire prayer, verses 15 to 23, I ask you, what do you pray for? What what are you praying for now? What do you pray for other people? You know, your prayers can follow this one. You see the the way Paul prays? Your prayers can follow this one. You don't have to pray the same old things in the same old way. Your prayers can follow Ephesians 1. Because Jesus intercedes and the Spirit is with us, we can know God. So pray, God, I want to know you. Let me know what you're calling me to. Make me to know your gracious, rich love for me. Make me to know the power of the risen Christ so that I can walk faithfully after you. Make Ephesians 1 your own prayer and begin to see the depths of knowing the glorious God of grace. Let's pray. Father, we want to pray to you as if we are really talking to you because we have access to you through your son. And your spirit has opened our eyes. Continue to work in us, Lord, so that we may know you more deeply through the study of your word and we may become more like you in our lives. Do this for the glory of your name. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Amen. And so as we have the opportunity,